Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in you. We thank you that the Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And Lord, we pray that you would cause everything in us to respond to that call. Lord, we pray that you would so reveal yourself to us in your word that we would be convinced that you are worthy of our worship and gratitude. You are worthy of our earnest service. You are worthy of the best that we have. And Father, we pray also that you would so reveal yourself to us and so overwhelm us with your glory that we would know that you are worthy of every severe demand you make upon us. You are worthy of every countercultural imperative being obeyed. And Lord, we pray that in our hearts there would be no question about whether we are going to obey you. No hesitation about whether we are going to embrace everything the New Testament and the Old Testament calls us to do for your glory. Lord, you alone can bring this about. You alone can make us people who are able to be loving and patient and submissive and respectful. You alone can make our hearts so that what wells up out of them honors you and does not defile this glorious world that you have made. So, Lord, we need you. We need you to come. We need you to reveal yourself to us. And we need, we need you to continue the great work that you've begun. And we call upon you to do it now. In Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 18, and in some ways, it's, it's like a same song, second verse here, very similar to what we've been seeing in the way that God reveals himself to Abraham and the way that Abraham responds. But as you turn there this morning to Genesis 18, um, I, I want to try to give you an analogy. I, I, was, I was thinking, what... What, what is it like for God to reveal himself to Abraham and for Abraham to respond the way that he does? And the analogy that came to my mind is the way that the British responded to Winston Churchill in the years of World War II. Because prior to Winston Churchill becoming the prime minister of England, uh, prior to that, they had a man named Neville Chamberlain, and if you know the story, you know that Neville Chamberlain led a government that was trying to appease Adolf Hitler. He was trying to give Hitler what he wanted and meet Hitler's demand in the hope that Hitler would not invade England and enslave the British like he had invaded France and enslaved the French. And... Um, Churchill recognized and realized there is no appeasing this man. We, we can either fight to the death for our freedom and, and the freedom of the world and stop him, or we will be his slaves. And Churchill talked about the way that it fell to him to, to speak the words that awakened courage, that awakened bravery in the hearts of the British people. And those people absolutely loved him. Uh, I'm, I'm listening to this biography of Winston Churchill now, and I'm just in this section where he's, he's, he's traveling around through the cities that have just been blasted to smithereens by the German fighter pilots. The, the bombers would come in, and they would drop their bombs on England, and, and the, the buildings would crumble, and, and thousands of British people would die, and then Churchill would walk through the ruins the next morning, and the people would come out in the streets as they're clearing up the re- rubble, and they would cry out to him, we can take it. We can take it. Continue the fight. What they're saying is, we don't want to be slaves of Hitler. We don't want to give in to him. And something like that is what happens when the Lord reveals himself to Abraham. Look at Genesis 18, 
verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him. Now, before we read on, let's just stop and think about what might have happened. If, if it wasn't the Lord, if it wasn't God who had revealed himself to Abraham, how, how might someone respond? Maybe, maybe an ancient Near Eastern uh, royal personage like Abraham. I know he's never called a king, but he's got an army of 318 men in his house, and he's defeated other kings, and he's, he's this wealthy person with all this dignity and all these people under his authority and, and depending upon him. He's a very important person, and this God has made these promises to him. 25 years ago, I am going to give this land to your offspring. Now, if this wasn't God, we might expect Abraham to say something like this. Oh, you. Hey, 25 years have gone by now, and I'm still waiting on this land to be mine. We might expect him to say, oh, it's you, is it? 25 years have gone by, and I'm still looking for that seed you promised me. And there's nothing of that in Abraham's response to the Lord. Now, part of it is, the other thing that, that God promised Abraham is blessing. And if you've walked with God, if you know God, then you know that the blessing of God makes it so that if you don't get the land that you were promised and you don't get the seed that maybe you're promised, you've still got God and he's enough. So I think Abraham's response, he, he's experiencing God. And then look at what happens here. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Uh, by the way, that, that phrasing, in the heat of the day, we know another phrase like that in the Bible, don't we? It, it, it calls to my mind, in the cool of the day. And, and there's sort of a contrast here between the way that the Lord came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and now the way the Lord is going to appear to Abraham in the heat of the day. There's a, there's a contrast with, with the way life was in Eden, and now the way it is outside Eden. But there's also a contrast in the way that that Abraham responds to the Lord with the way that Adam and Eve hid from the Lord. Look at what, look at what happens in verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked. Now, I want to I stay with Abraham's response here for a second, but we'll come back and talk about the three men. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door. And maybe you've Maybe, maybe your dignified old men don't tend to run. This guy, you know, um, 17.1, when Abram was 99 years old. He's 99 years old. He has all these people under his authority and, and who are dependent upon him. And he sees these guys coming and he takes off running. This is an undignified response. He, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Abraham responds with unhesitating, unreserved, unqualified worship. That's how Abraham responds. Abraham sees the living God, and everything within him says, My dignity is nothing. My, my pride is irrelevant. Appearances, I'm not, I don't care about preserving those appearances. This God must be worshiped. And so he runs and he bows before this God. Well, what about his people who don't expect him to bow before others? No, that's, that, that's, that, that is not even a consideration at this point. Abraham knows this is the living God. And he knows what the appropriate response is to it. I, I love Don Whitney's definition of worship. It's very simple. Worship is our response to God's revelation of himself. That's what we see right here. Worship is our response to God's revelation of himself. God reveals himself to Abraham. Abraham runs to him. And, and notice again, there's, there's no questioning. Hey, God, what about those promises that you made to me? The, the, that's, God will take care of all of that. And God is so wonderfully glorious to Abraham that he knows all of that will be dealt with. 
What's important for me to do is to respond with the adoration, the devotion, the commit, the gratitude that I owe to this living God who has re- graciously, mercifully, without my looking for him. I mean, look at the text. As he sat at the door of the tent, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Abraham is not, he's not crying out, oh Lord, would you come to me? No, God just mercifully, graciously of his own goodness comes to Abraham and Abraham knows how he must respond. And he bows himself to the earth and he worships. So, so the first thing that I want to talk about here as, a, as an application has to do with our response to God. And, and what I want to say to you is this. If you want to worship God, you must experience His revelation of Himself. Now, this passage is describing an event that took place prior to the giving of the entirety of the Old and New Testament canon. It took place prior to the giving of the, the Sinai covenant to Israel in, that we'll read about if we, in, in Exodus you know, 19 through 24 or so. God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. This, this takes place prior to the tabernacle being given to Israel. So this is happening at a time when Abraham doesn't have the Mosaic covenant, he doesn't have the tabernacle or the later temple, and he doesn't have the Bible. And God is mercifully, graciously revealing himself to Abraham. Once God put those other things in place at the time of the Mosaic Covenant, he mainly revealed himself to Moses. And then now that God has revealed himself in Christ by sending his son Jesus, I would say God, we should expect God mainly to reveal himself to us in the scriptures. So if you want to worship God, you must experience the revelation of God in the scriptures, and it'll change your life. It'll change your life. This morning, personal testimony, this morning I had what I consider to be a very discouraging um, A few things happened to me upon waking. I don't want to go into it. It's not your business, but it it was very discouraging to me, and I was down, and you know what I did? I picked up my phone, I opened my phone to the ESV app, I opened to Proverbs chapter 16, I hit this little speaker icon, and I hit play. And David Cochran Heath started reading the Bible to me. And as I just let the Bible wash over me, my whole outlook changed. My attitude changed. My disposition changed. My confidence in the Lord changed. And I went from being discouraged and and downhearted to being confident in the Lord, hopeful about life, and excited about the day. That didn't come about out of my own strength. That didn't come about because now I'm, I'm generally an optimistic, you know, encouraged person, glass half full kind of person. That didn't come from that. It came from God. It came from the Bible. And I submit to you that the more you expose yourself to the Bible, the more optimistic you'll be the more happy you'll be in general because, because character is... Somebody else's phone is talking. Because um, perseverance produces character and character produces hope as you continue to do things like rejoice in the, in the face of affliction and, 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 and trial. So uh, one more thing on this. This is why our services look the way that they do. We, we want to respond to the revelation of God in the scriptures in our worship service. That's why we have a, a scriptural call to worship in response to which we sing. That's why we have a scriptural reading, and then we respond to that. That's why we open the Bible and we try to preach it line by line, word by word, because we want God to reveal himself to you. So we want the Bible to just be washing over you, and then we want you to be, to be responding, not to me or what I'm doing or my personality or any of that. That's all irrelevant. I am not the point. The Bible is the point. The Bible is what you need. The Bible is what your pastors are trying to give to you, and this is why, this is why our, if you want to call it a liturgy, 
you know, pre-COVID, we had a lot more Bible in the service. Post-COVID, we still got a lot of Bible in the service, but this is why we have the liturgy that we have, because we, we want you to be experiencing God's revelation of himself, and then we want you to be responding to that with praise and thanks to God. Now, look at verse 1. The Lord, and again, when you see those, those small caps, you know, the, the R is, it's a capital R and the D is a capital D, but it's not as tall as the L. When you see that, that's telling you that the divine name is here, Yahweh. So Yahweh appeared to him, and then what, so what Abraham is, what Abraham is experiencing is a revelation of Yahweh. What he sees are three men. And I want to read to you some comments on this passage from Augustine. He, he writes, Three men appeared to Abraham, and none of them is said to have been superior to the others in stature or age or authority. And then he says, So why may we not take the episode as a visible intimation by means of visible creations of the equality of the triad and of the single identity of, of substance in the three persons. Now, what, what Augustine is saying here is not that the three members of the triune God have literally physically appeared to Abraham. He's going to go on to explain how, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, he's going to go on to explain how God typically revealed himself in the Old Testament by means of angels. And, and really his appeal, uh, his, his proof for that is in the New Testament. But what he's saying is that the appearance of these three guys, when it's the one Yahweh who appears to Abraham, is a, is a very interesting tidbit of revelation that is given. And, and he's suggesting that there's, there's perhaps more going on than, than could have been known, even by Moses, because, I mean, I don't think that Moses had a full revelation of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And so I do think that this is a place where by the Holy Spirit and by the revelation that God is giving, Abraham really saw these three guys. I think the divine author of Scripture is communicating through the text more than its human author, Moses, could have known was going on. Because we know that God always exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what's going to happen in this passage, it's really, it's, it's really a, an interesting passage. At different points, um, we're going to have plurals referring to these guys. So, for instance, look at verse 9 of Genesis 18. They said to him. It's like all three of these guys are talking to Abraham. But then look at verse 10. The Lord said, Yahweh said, and I mean, they've supplied that, really. It's, it just says, he said, but it's God speaking. So they said, plural, but then he said, singular. So how do, how do we resolve these kinds of plurals and singulars? Well, now that we have the revelation of the New Testament, we know that what's being intimated here, what's being hinted at here, is the triune identity of the living God. This is a really important thing for us as Christians to know. It's really important for us to know that, that our God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are equal in power and glory. It is tremendously significant for us to know that because it's, it's one of the things that distinguishes the God of the Bible from the God of Islam or the God of some other monotheistic uh, approach to religion. If we don't know that God exists as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't know him as he is. So this is, this is just magnificently glorious and, and mind It's one of the things about the Bible that I think should prompt you to say, wow, there are things in here that I didn't notice. There, there, are, there are things in here that will repay my close attention. I can read this more closely and look more carefully for these kinds of things. And, and just to draw your attention to one other thing like this, look over at chapter 19 and look at uh, verses 23 and 24. And, and in, in the context, you know, the, the one man stays with Abraham. One of the three stays with Abraham. The other two go on. And, and uh, now, in, 
Exodus 19, uh, sorry, Genesis 19, 23, and 24, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then, verse 24, the Lord, Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So it's like there's one Yahweh on earth causing the fire and sulfur to rain down from Yahweh in heaven. How do we explain something like this? Well, I mean, the rabbis had a, had a, a really difficult time dealing with this because they don't, they, don't have a con- they don't have a concept of the Trinity. But Trinitarian Christians can look at this and say, well, Moses is faithfully recording things that he may not have fully understood, but that actually are true about the living God. That it's possible for, I mean, I think we could say something like the Father to be in heaven and the Son to be on earth, and they're both Yahweh, and the one is raining down the fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the other. So this is a fascinating book, and God is worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our best intellectual efforts to understand these things and to pay close attention to the Scriptures. Uh, just a word about, about how God manifested himself to Abraham in the form of angels. Why would I say something like that? Well, I'm really, I'm really putting together other passages and following other theologians, but I just want to call your, your attention to a few statements in the New Testament. Um, Acts 7, verse 53, Stephen says, you who received the law as delivered by angels. So Stephen is referencing the way that God gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. And when you read about that in Exodus 19, you see God come down on the mountaintop and then speak out of the midst of the fire. And there's nothing in there about an angel doing the mediation of the law. But Stephen, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recording how Stephen related in Acts 7.53 that actually angels delivered the law. Similarly, uh, it's not unique to Stephen, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that uh, the, the, the law in Galatians 3.19 was put in place through angels by an intermediary. I think he means Moses is the intermediary. Hebrews chapter 2 speaks of, again, of the giving of the law, and he says that, uh, that it was in, in Hebrews 2.2, 2, the message, meaning the old covenant message, was declared by angels. So it seems that these New Testament authors, um, Luke, Paul, and then the author of Hebrews, are, are understanding the old covenant um, revelations of God. When God revealed himself, manifested himself, and spoke to people under the old covenant, that he used angelic intermediaries. And I think that that can help us understand the angel of the Lord and how in some passages, as we'll see in Genesis, you'll, you'll have the angel of the Lord start speaking, and then you keep reading, and the Lord speaks. And, and so in the same way that a prophet can say, thus says the Lord, and the prophet is the Lord's representative, this angel of the Lord can say, thus says the Lord, or even on this occasion, these three, I think probably angels, reveal themselves, and it's the Lord appearing to Abraham. Now, this is the kind of thing that theologians disagree on. So, it is no problem for me if you look at this text and you say, no, I think it was actually Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who appeared to Abraham. Hey, that's cool. That's fine. Search the scriptures and see if these things are so. I'm not going to be upset with you for disagreeing with me. I'm not going to be dis- upset with you for disagreeing with Augustine. We can disagree on these kinds of things. But we, we do agree. We can't disagree on the idea that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can't disagree on that. We can't disagree on the scriptures being authoritative. We can't disagree on that. But we can disagree on how we interpret the scriptures. Okay, so look at what God's revelation of himself produces in Abraham. First, it produces worship, our response to God's revelation of himself. Look what else it it prompts. Look at at what Abraham says in verse 3. He said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight... Do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, 
And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Do you see what, what God's revelation of himself, in addition to worship, produces in Abraham? It produces hospitality. That's what it produces in Abraham. So I want to say, you know, we're, we're, we're encouraging people. Um, we're encouraging the church to do uh, personal evangelism in the form of hospitality. Uh, this weekend, next weekend, we're, we're really trying to, to encourage you all. I'm praying for you all that the Lord will lay on your heart an unbeliever in your circle of life or perhaps an unbelieving family or neighbor or whatever the case may be that you can invite to your home and in one way or another try to share the gospel with those people. And so yesterday, I've told you guys about this some, um, we've, been, we, we've been playing baseball in the month of July, and yesterday we had as many members of the team and their parents as would come, as could come, over to our home. And, you know, hospitality is challenging. So my poor kids, uh, they, they have, a, um, there's a, uh, there's sort of like a field general for the cleaning of the home at our house, and they, they were put to work. I mean, uh, poor Jed, he's got, the, he's got the vacuum cleaner out, and he's vacuuming the stairs, and, and uh, Jake is laboring away, sweeping the basement, and, and Luke is doing uh, various kinds of yard work. I mean, everybody's at work. It's, 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 a, it's all hands on deck. It takes a lot to practice hospitality. What motivates that? Worship does. Worship does. We're doing this for the Lord. We're doing this to try to make his name great. We're doing this because we want people to come here and feel welcome and loved. And we're trying to build good relationships among ourselves so that we'll be an attractive witness. And then we want them to, to hear about Jesus. That's what we want. That's what this is about. And um, what, what, what we did was um, we, we got them all over, we gave them some, you know, fed them, got their bellies full, satisfied their desire for meat and drink, like uh, Homer says, and then, um, and then I, had, I had a former um, Alabama football player share his testimony, talk to these kids about how he grew up, he grew up wanting to play football for the University of Alabama, and then he achieved his goal, and he made that team but then he had injury after injury after injury that kept him off the field. And he talked about how football, he said, football's a good servant, but it's a terrible master. And, and as he told his life story, he talked about the way that, that after he was done playing, he was still uh, like a student coach at the University of Alabama, and these eight committed Christians came onto the football team. And he said prior to that, you know, there had only been uh, this, this one uh, guy who was a committed Christian on the team, and he said he was weird. No, you know, but now the, there are these eight guys, and he said these guys were the hardest working players on the team. He said they were servants. They cared about other people. They were great teammates. And he said, I just watched those guys, and I saw that they had something that I didn't have, that, that football was, their, uh, was not their idol. It was not their God. Jesus was their God. And, and he talked about how that... Uh, brought him to a place where he was open to the gospel, and then the Lord saved him. And so I want to say this. Listen, if you want to invite somebody to your house at this hospitality event to, to tell their testimony or to share that, you have the right to do it. It's your party. You set it up, you know. Hey, I've invited you over for dinner tonight, and one of the things I want you to have the opportunity to do is hear from my friend. Listen, J.O. was a, a helicopter pilot in the Navy. He'd have a, he's got a great testimony. Um, Chris Birch has a great testimony. Your, your elders of this church have great testimonies. I've heard many of them. It's awesome. You probably know, you could probably share them your testimony. I invited you over tonight. I just want to tell you about what's most important to me, and I want to tell you a little bit of my life history. It's a great opportunity to share the gospel with people. Worship fuels hospitality. Look what else it fuels. Look at how, again, starting in verse 6, undignified Abraham is. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seals of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd. It's the second time in this text we've read that Abraham ran in response to these guys. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good. He's taking a choice animal, something that's precious and valuable, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Verse 6, he went quickly into the tent. He said to Sarah, quick. And then he, the young man prepared it quickly. 
One commentator describes this as a tornado of activity. Abraham is just running around frantic trying to get things ready. Then, verse 8, he took curds and milk. This is the best stuff he's got. These are delicacies in the ancient world. And the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And then, Father Abraham... This, this figure who's like a royal priest. He's like a king and a priest in the book of Genesis. Now he takes up his duties like a waiter. At the end of verse 8, he stood by them under the tree while they ate. This is, this is magnificent. Worship fuels earnest service. You know, this is what we've seen repeatedly from Abraham. God reveals himself to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he says, leave everything that's important to you. And Abraham's like, whatever you say, you don't even have to tell me where to go. I'm gone. He, he appears in Genesis 15, and he says, get the sacrifice ready. Abraham does it. He appears in Genesis 17, and he says, circumcise yourself. And Abraham says, okay, no problem. Me and all the men of my household today will get it done. He appears in Genesis 18, and Abraham, this flurry of activity, goes into action serving the living God. This is what we want, isn't it? We want something great to live for. We want to experience the living God such that he opens our hearts and he makes us ready to say, wherever you call me to go, if you want me to go to Afghanistan, I'll go. We'll figure out a way. If you want me to go to India, it's really hot there. We'll deal with it. If you want me to go to a place where the government says, actually, we don't want you in here, we'll figure out a way to get the gospel in, into those borders. If you, what, whatever you want me to do, I'm ready. And whatever I need to give, it belongs to you. Actually, I think there's something more challenging than than dramatic upheaval and reorientation of your life. And that is, that is what Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 13. And I just want to read to you and reflect with you briefly on what Paul calls us to. I just want to read some of these words, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Kind. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Now let's just, let's just think together about what would make someone able to love. What would make someone able to be patient? I think that, that like at the center of all of this that Paul is describing is, is the experience of being satisfied in God having experienced the living God, and come to know he's just, he's trustworthy, he's going to make all things right, he's going to make good on everything that he's promised. And so someone is rude or acts in an inappropriate way, and your experience of God makes it where you don't have to snap back in anger. You're able to be patient and your experience of God makes it where someone's nasty to you. And you can say, is there any way that I can serve you? Is there, is there a way for me to return a gentle word to you? And then it doesn't envy. Okay, you see someone who has what you want. Whether that's material things or relational things or accomplishment things or influence, whatever it is. They have what you want, but you're able to say, my experience of God makes me content with what he's given to me. Love does not envy or boast. I mean, boasting and envy, they're kind of related, I think, in that if you're envying what someone else has, it's because you're not content with what you have, and if you're boasting, it's because you're not content with other people's opinion of you, and you feel like you need to make them aware of your accomplishments or of the way that other people regard you, and so you're reporting on 
these things for their benefit so that they'll know how wonderful you are. But if you're satisfied in God, if you've, if you've experienced Him, if you're worshiping Him and you're trusting Him, you're, it's like you're free from the need to do that. It is not arrogant because worship destroys pride. The experience of God destroys any foundation for arrogance. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way because it's God's way that's what matters. It's not my way that matters. It's God's way that matters. It is not irritable or resentful. I'm not the point. I'm not going to get irritated because God's the point. I'm not going to resent those people because God said it's mine to avenge. I will repay. So we can can not be irritated and we can not be resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing because you're not rooting against people. You're rooting for the Lord. You're rooting for people to know God. So when, when somebody does something wrong, your attitude is not, oh, he wronged me, and now how wicked he is is being exposed. No, you're not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You want the truth of God to be known. And then verse 7, love bears all things. Love doesn't say, if you don't do it my way, I'm out of here. Love doesn't say, if you don't agree with me on these things that we can disagree about. I mean, you know, there are things that make us Christians, and we got to agree on those things in order to be members of Kenwood Baptist Church, okay? you you got to agree on the authority of Scripture, the Trinity, uh, the two natures of Christ, he's God and man, substitutionary atonement. we got to agree on those things. If if you disagree on those things with us, with the Bible, um, we'd like to discuss them with you, but we really can't bear your disagreement with us on those points and you continue as a member because that just doesn't work. But if we're not talking about one of those things, if we're talking about how we think, uh, take your pick of the cultural issues, we ought to be able to bear with one another in love. Love bears all things, believes all things. Now, I think what's, what's being said here is uh, believes in the sense of believes good about people, has a loving disposition toward people, doesn't assume the worst, hopes all things. We're hoping for people to succeed, and success means honoring Christ, lifting up the name of Jesus, endures all things. And, and this, this sort of links up with Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about how we should make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we're going to be able to do that, we've got to love one another. And the only way we're going to love one another is if we experience God. We worship Him. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're washing ourselves in the Word. So it's a big challenge, loving God, loving one another. It's, it's, it's a severe demand that is laid upon us to be loving. And it's fueled, it's empowered by the experience of the living God. Okay, so in uh, Genesis 18, 1 through 8, God reveals himself to Abraham. Abraham uh, flies into activity, hospitality. And now in verses 9 through 15, there's this reiteration of God's promise to Sarah. And this, this conversation is fascinating. So verse 9, they said to him, again, those three men who have appeared, Yahweh, they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Now, having read what we just saw in 2 Kings 4, that phrase should sound familiar. About this time next year. We'll come back to that. I will will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So this is a reiteration of the promise of seed to Abraham. Abraham is not, he's not brought it up to God. God graciously, mercifully reiterates the long-awaited promise. We're over 25 years now that Abraham has been waiting for this. He was 75 when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's at least 99 now, and he's being told, next year, about this time next year, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then look at the middle of verse 10. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Just a 
You remember 2 Kings 4? You remember where that woman was standing when Elisha, when Gehazi brought her? She's standing at the door is where she's standing. When Elisha said, and, and Gehazi says, well, her husband is old. I mean, Abraham's old. And she has no son. I, here's, here's what I'm suggesting to you. I think the author of Kings is trying to make deliberate connections between that narrative in 2 Kings 4 and this narrative. And we'll talk about why, but let's continue here. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. He's like 100, she's like 90. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So she's gone through menopause. She, her body is no longer uh, capable of making babies. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. Now, this is, this is interesting because this is what the way Abraham responded in the previous chapter. You remember in chapter 17, verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now, I think that the different nature of their laughter can be seen from their different responses. So we talked last week about what happened with Abraham. Here, because of time and some other things I want to do, I just want to focus on the way Sarah responds here. This laughter doesn't seem to be quite like Abraham's laughter. Abraham's laughter, I think, included some incredulity, but mainly just wonder and, and, and gladness. He's not rebuked in any way. Sarah, on the other hand, there seems to be in this laughter some sin because she's confronted and she's afraid about, about being called out for it. And that fear seems to reflect there being sin in there. And I think that perhaps there's some cynical skepticism going on in her heart. And what that reflects is unacceptable unbelief. And, and we're all capable of this. Unacceptable unbelief that manifests itself in cynical skepticism. And... The Lord is so merciful even with this response. I mean, God, God doesn't deserve this response, does he? does he? He is fully and completely deserving of being believed. And look how gentle and kind he is. With, now, he's not going to let it go. He's not going to act like it didn't happen. But Sarah laughed to herself, verse 12, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? It's interesting, the word pleasure there is this word edna, which has the consonants of the word eden. And I think there's a connotation of the, the way that Eden was just springing with life. And the pleasure that, that she's talking about is the pleasure of having a child. She's gonna, her body is going to spring with life like Eden was just flourishing in every way with life. Shall I have an Eden-like experience? Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that, now that I am old? I mean, this, the Lord's character is consistent, isn't it? He's, he's, he always asks questions when people sin. Adam, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Eve, what is this that you have done? Cain, where is your brother? What have you done? Why did Sarah laugh shall I and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord is saying, Look, if I can say, let there be light, and it happens, I can say, let there be Isaac. Let there be he laughs, and it's going to happen. And then he, he reiterates the promise in verse 14. At the appointed time, that, that phrase is also in 2 Kings 4, Lamoed, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. Same phrase in 2 Kings 4, Ka'et Chaya, at the, at the season of life, next spring, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. Uh, you could render that, Sarah lied. And you remember, the woman says to Elisha, don't lie to your servant. Another point of contact between Genesis 18 and 2 Kings 4. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. So the Lord is calling out her sin. He wants her to believe. And I think that the evidence indicates that she did. She eventually was able to work through these issues, repent of her sin, which is how we all need to respond. 
If we've sinned, we need to respond. We need to repent. Now, why would the author of Kings make this connection between the child born to the, the woman who's barren with an old husband? Well, you remember what happens in that passage, right? Uh, Joshua read it earlier in the service. The kid dies, and then the prophet raises him from the dead. Isn't that magnificent? So why would he forge a connection? Well, you remember what's going to happen with Isaac, right? Abraham is going to take him on the mountain, intending to sacrifice him, confident that he's going to return with the child alive. So let's just put together some points of correspondence here. Uh, One of them being, this is an unexpected, impossible birth in both cases. Genesis 18, 2 Kings 4. We can say the same thing about Samuel's birth in 1 Samuel uh, chapters 1 and 2. Samuel's birth is unexpected and impossible. And there are others like Samson's birth. Unexpected, impossible birth of a barren woman. And the child, in Isaac's case, he's offered up as a sacrifice. But he's delivered. And he, and he lives to tell about it. In 2 Kings 4, that child experiences death and God raises him from the dead. I wonder what these things are pointing forward to. Unexpected births, impossible births of a child who might be offered up as a sacrifice and yet live. What what could that be pointing forward to? If you you don't know the answer to that question, let, let me just be clear. This is how Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world born of a virgin, fulfilling the pattern of these unexpected, impossible births across the Old Testament. And then Jesus was put forward as a sacrifice of propitiation. He was slain, unlike Isaac. Isaac, who wasn't slain. He was dead like that child in 2 Kings 4. And God raised him from the dead to secure our salvation. This is, this is the good news that Christ rose from the dead, having paid the penalty for our sin. This is what we as Christians believe. And so if you're here and you're visiting and you want to know what is it that Christians believe, we believe in the God who made the universe, who is holy, who sent his son, who really exchanged... I was, I was, uh, reading this book, Ken Sandy, The Peacemaker, at J.O.'s recommendation. I, it's a great book. encourage you to read it. Um, and he was talking about how what Jesus did was he exchanged accounts with us. He took our account that was just bankrupt, except for all the sin in it. And he, he took that and he, he exchanged it for his, which was perfect and full and complete. And that exchange, that's how we're saved. He takes our sin, we get his his righteousness. It's glorious. So, so here in Genesis, we're, it's like we're getting intimations of what God is going to do through this remarkable birth, through the sacrifice of Isaac that we'll get to eventually. Intimations that are going to rumble through the Old Testament until they come to culmination and fulfillment in what Christ accomplishes on the cross. And these glorious realities... This is what sets us up to to hear Paul say something like this to us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Why would Paul submit to being a prisoner? Well, because he's trying to advance the gospel. Everything for the gospel. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the calling. What is that calling? You're a child of the living God. You're destined to be a king priest. Revelation chapter 1, he made us a kingdom and priests. And and all through the book of Revelation, they will reign with him on the earth. You're going to reign. That's the calling. You're going to be royal priests in the new heavens and new earth representing the living God. New Adams, imaging forth the character of the living God. That's the calling. And our challenge is to walk in a manner worthy of that calling now. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And all those virtues are enabled the same way those virtues in 1 Corinthians 13 are enabled, by the experience of God. You know, if, if God reveals himself, this is what happened to my friend who, testi- who gave a testimony last night. 
This guy loves football. Football's his idol. He lives for football. But the living God revealed himself to him. And as a result of that, his allegiance changed. And he went from being somebody who lived for football to somebody that lives for Jesus. That's what happens. And, and this happens to people. You can go from being, you know, a feminist to being someone who says, the Bible says husbands, uh, uh, wives submit to your husband. Now, why would I bring that up? Well, did you notice what Sarah said there in, in Genesis 18? Sarah said, she laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, my Lord is old. That's the, that's the little reference that Peter picks up in 1 Peter 3, and he says um, that this is the model for women. I'll just read it to you. 1 Peter 3, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. That's countercultural. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And, and it goes on. But again, what, what empowers this is worship. That's the point I'm trying to make here. What makes it where people hear the Bible and they say, whatever the Bible tells me to do, that's what I want to do. It's the experience of God. Let's pray. You, Father, are worthy of this response. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our devotion. You are worthy of our best efforts at hospitality, our best efforts to serve you and others, to serve you by serving others. You are worthy of our walking in a manner that accords with the calling that you have placed upon our lives. And so, Father, we pray for your help, and we pray for your continued mercy to us. We pray that you would cause the Scriptures to be living and active for us, we pray that you would do these miracles. We pray that when we open the Bible, Lord, it would not just be dry words on a page, but it would be rivers of living water, nourishing our roots, causing the, the life-giving properties to make it where we bear fruit in season, make it where even when we get old, our leaves don't wither, and make it where everything that we do, we do prospers. Lord, we want this for your glory. And so we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.